Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Greetings. Well, I think this conversation is a real nice brain tickler. It gets you thinking about some some bigger ideas and concepts and, and how you're running your brain in and of itself. And so we're talking with Bill Poundstone about why it's important to know stuff. So you're going to learn, one, why we still do need that general knowledge, even in the era of Google. Two, why those people who listen to podcasts tend to be the most informed people of all which we could have told you. And three, why it's nearly impossible for humans to be unpredictable. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript of things mentioned here, you want to go over to awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep39. And if you just want those takeaways really fast, while at awesomeatyourjob.com, sign up for the gold nugget email list. So here's a quick bit about Bill William Poundstone is the author of 15 books, including Fortune's Formula, which was named Amazon Editor's pick for number one nonfiction book of the year. He's written for the New York Times Book Review, Village Voice, Esquire, Harper's, The Believer, The Economist, and Harvard Business Review. Poundstone lives in Los Angeles. And here's Bill. Bill, thanks so much for appearing here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Yes, it's good to be with you. Well, I'm super excited to be having this conversation. You've got so many interesting books and, and we're going to zero in on, on the latest. But first, I want to note, Wikipedia informs me that your cousin is Paula Poundstone. She certainly is. And she was very funny, even as a kid. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I'm wondering, so what are your family gatherings like? You're sharing thought-provoking insights into the nature of the human experience and work and life and and she's cracking jokes it must just be a hoot yeah yeah it's it's always very unpredictable i mean and it's not just us every member of the family is, is quite a character well that, that's a good time and when i was a child i had two gerbils and one of them i named after paula poundstone oh wow the gerbil was named paula <laughs> that's great uh the strange thing is paula's sister peggy was actually named after a dog that <laughs> her father had. So I guess kind of runs in the family there. Oh, that's fun. It's like the circle of life, the, the names yes, and animals exactly. and, and, and all that. Gerbils, I think, would count in that. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Well, you've got so many, so many interesting, varied books, you know, from the fortunes formula to head in the cloud to, and rock beats scissors or smashes scissors. What would you say, is there any like particular theme or thread that, that sparks you to write a particular book? Well, I guess it's if, if I get really engaged by the topic, I do sort of, sort of like the idea of trying different things and not, you know, sort of mining the same territory each time. Understood. Well, so so today I really want to chat about your your latest book here, Head in the Cloud, and why knowing things still matters when you can just look it up. You can just Google it readily. So I'd love to just start right there. Why does knowing things still matter? Well, I think that's an issue that we've all sort of asked ourselves nowadays, uh, since obviously it is so easy to look up information, and you have to sort of reevaluate the whole issue. How important is it to be well-informed and educated? Uh, and most of what has been written about this is kind of uh, people saying, well, I think it's important to know this, that, and the other thing. That's just someone's opinion. I, I thought it would be interesting to do a more data-driven oh, approach. Oh, you're talking my language. Yes. <laughs> 
So what I did in the book is did a long series of national surveys of people to find out, first of all, what do people know about various topics? And it could be current events. It could be science. It could be sports. It could be movies, uh, almost anything, and see how that correlates with all sorts of other things that are going on in their lives. So I look at things, everything from household income to whether they report they're happy, to politics, to, you know, personal behavior. Uh, And you find that there are an awful lot of uh, correlations there. And you also find that you can Google any single fact, but what you can't Google is what you don't know, what you should be looking up, because maybe you're too ignorant to know that there's something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I think that's maybe the most important thing we get from education and from just being informed, the whole idea that you get some sense of what you don't know and what you have to you know, look up or go to someone else to really fill yourself in. And that's a pretty valuable thing. Understood. And, and so I'm curious to hear with these correlations, like what are some of the most strong and, and striking correlations that they got a great adjusted R, R squared, or however you're kind of assessing that, like what, yes. what are real strong, like this kind of area of knowledge correlates very strongly to this kind of life outcome? Well, one of the things that surprised me uh, was sports trivia. Huh. It correlates very strongly with, uh, with uh, both household and individual income. And when I say correlate strongly, if people who know a lot of sports, you generally find their income is more than twice that of people who know almost nothing about sports. Now, I tried to figure out why this is, and this is true even when you adjust for education and age. So the way I report most of this, if you look at someone who's 35 years old, has a four-year college degree, even then you find this big difference uh, in income based on how much you know about fairly easy sports trivia. And I think it, it comes down to the fact that you can learn, even if you're not a sports fan, You learn a lot about sports just by paying attention to people at the water cooler, just associating with people. So if you're a good business person, maybe you're going to absorb a lot about sports just by osmosis, even if it's not something that you're really interested in. And there were other things I looked into, such as how good you are at spelling, that really did not have that same degree of correlation. Huh. I think in that case, spelling isn't necessarily something you you learn just by associating with other successful or educated people. But sports seems to be a, a good example of that. Oh, I see. So it's like the sports knowledge. Your hunch is that because you are associating with an array of people who you know, have the access and interest and, and knowledge of sports, that just sort of correlates to your income because it's like, It correlates to those who are surrounding you. Yeah, exactly. And by the same token, I mean, with a lot of these topics, you realize that even at a given level of education, whether it's high school or whether it's PhD, there are some people who continue to learn things throughout their life, that they pay attention to what other people are saying, to what's in the news. And if you are the kind of person who absorbs that, you tend to report yourself as making more money being happier, generally being healthier even. So it does have this kind of very broad-based effect. Indeed. So now I guess I'm curious, like what kinds of knowledge did you you study this correlate most with career performance or progression or seniority? 
have you looked at any of that? Well, I, I haven't looked into that except in the, in the terms of income. Mm-hmm. And as I say, quite a few things do. Generally speaking, it's actually easier types of, of general knowledge. Uh, the way I explain it is the kind of things that you might get in Jeopardy and okay. even in the, in the first board of Jeopardy. So they aren't the really hard questions. But if you know that kind of information, that correlates a lot with income. When you get to really hard things, like if I ask very difficult questions in quantum physics, well, the only people who are going to know that are quantum physicists, mm-hmm. but there isn't then this big correlation because everyone who knows that tends to be in one particular group. But if you ask simpler questions, like what gas makes up most of the air? And of course, the answer is nitrogen. Nitrogen. Yes. But Yes, but actually the majority of Americans say oxygen. Uh, I guess you just hear more about oxygen since you have to, you know, have to have oxygen to breathe. Uh, but it's a simple science question. It, I believe it should be taught in schools, but an awful lot of Americans don't know that. And that's something that correlates a lot with income. Now, again, it's not that you're going to use that in your work, but I think it is an index of people who pay attention who continue lifelong learning. Okay, that's an interesting way to put that. An index of people who pay attention and are continuing their lifelong learning. So so I guess I'm curious, so what is that implication for, for us and our lives and for professionals? Like, are there particular practices that we should engage in to accumulate more knowledge that will be helpful to us in careers? Yeah, definitely. Uh, a big part of the book, I look into how people get information in the digital age. And because there are so many media options nowadays, and of course, a lot of pundits uh, take the idea that, you know, you can customize your news feed. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're interested in one particular topic, you can make sure you get lots of information about that topic. And you really don't have to pay attention to things that really don't interest you. Now, in theory, this sounds really great. But what I found was that uh, in practice, the people who who get very broad-based knowledge tend to do a lot better in their careers, in life satisfaction, in health, and pretty much everything. So I looked at, in fact, at how specific types of media correlate with how well-informed people are. And one of the things I found was that podcasts score very highly. Oh, yeah. The people who say that they listen to podcasts regularly are much better informed than people who get their, their news mainly from television, mainly from the internet. So it is interesting. And I think part of the reason for that is that a podcast really has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most people who listen to it are willing to devote that time to listen to the whole thing. It's a little different from something like television where you've got a channel changer in your hand and you're constantly, you know, changing the channel whenever something doesn't interest you. A podcast you might even say is, well, I compare it to the the food you'd get at a spa versus the food you'd get at an all-you-can-eat restaurant. Uh, Television is more like an all-you-can-eat restaurant because if something comes on and you're not interested in it, you change the channel. So you you just kind of gorge on the particular topics that really appeal to you. But with a podcast, you know, you're you're kind of a captive audience for that 40 minutes or whatever. And you get what the the producer thinks is really an interesting story, something that's really going to benefit you. And it tends to work, as, as I find out, because they are much better informed. Well, that's great news for me, a podcaster. So, yeah. Yeah. 
That's much appreciated. So a variety of news sources and, and podcasts in particular are great. And that's really struck at a chord with me is, as I think about, geez, one of the smartest people I know, his name is Kevin. And uh, we were always neck and neck in, uh-huh. in high school for, oh, who's the smartest guy? It's him. It's Kevin. It's not me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and And so he will devour like maybe six different news sources just about every day. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, and you see it say that's a, that's a pretty common find that across folks who are very sharp and well-informed and mm-hmm. high income earners, they are collecting information from multiple sources and not pigeonholing themselves into one little nook. Yes, very definitely. And you find that correlation too, that the more news sources you regularly consult, uh, the generally better informed you are. And again, tend to be higher income and have other good life outcomes. Okay. Well, so now you had a couple more very intriguing bullets in your your book preview that I, I just have to ask about. Why is it that we are okay with spelling errors on menus? And I might even <laughs> add CNN.com or the CNN <laughs> News app. My gosh, maybe I don't tolerate those, but we're not so okay with spelling errors on a resume. Yeah, well, this is something that uh, when I started doing this book, I had several friends tell me that this was something they were really curious about because my friends tend to be kind of literary people and it really annoys them when they see these awful spelling errors on menus, like uh, instead of mescaline, mescaline <laughs> menu, you get all these outrageous things and you figure who is making this? Well, the answer in most cases now is that, uh, you know, it used to be, uh, a restaurant would have to take its menu to a coffee shop, and there would be a proofreader there, an English major who would actually make sure that everything was spelled right. Mm-hmm. But now they print out their menus daily on a laptop. It's the sous chef that's maybe doing this, and spelling isn't his strong suit. So that's how you get these really bad spelling errors. And I've had friends tell me that, you know, they would not go to a restaurant that had poor grammar. Ecads. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> yes, it's kind of an extreme, but see, I know people like that. So I thought it would be interesting to test that in an experiment, and it was very easy to do. I did a survey where I showed people what I said was a menu for a new restaurant that was about to start up. And I asked them a bunch of questions about the restaurant and the menu. Would you go to this restaurant? Do you think the prices are fair? Does the food seem interesting, appealing? Now, what the the people in the survey did not know was that I showed them one of two different menus. I made one menu that was scrupulously correct, and the other I put in every incredibly bad error I've ever seen in a menu. And I mean, practically every line had some ridiculous spelling error or grammar error. And the people got these these two menus, one of of the two randomly. Well, what I found was that there was really no difference in how they answered these questions. The people who saw the misspelled menu said they were just as likely to visit this restaurant, were just as likely to think that the food looked good, to think that the prices were fair. In every case, it was well within the statistical error bars. So all I can figure from that is that people really do figure we give, you know, restaurants a lot of slack when it comes to spelling and grammar. It really doesn't seem to matter to them. Well, but resumes, it's not the same. Yeah, well, resumes are are quite different thing. In, In that case, you find that there are very big differences. People do expect you to really get the spelling and grammar right on your resume. 
because, you know, that's kind of a detailed thing. It's, it's kind of your public face to an employer. So in a situation like that, it is very important. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And tell us, so we talked about different news sources and, and podcasts, and you've got a particular view on how we ought to navigate clickbait and media spin to, to be well-informed, and, and what is that prescription? Yeah, well, what people don't realize is that, I mean, companies make a lot of money off your attention. They want you to click on their news story or whatever and read it so they can show you ads. But they don't necessarily have your interest at heart. They, they're trying to, you know, make an honest buck, I guess. Mm-hmm. What I've found is that originally, I do a lot of research online as a writer. I'm always sitting in front of a screen. So I was spending increasing amount of time looking at these, you know, kind of clickbait news stories, which mostly are disappointing. And I figured, you know, I've got to discipline myself. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I tried different things. I started by thinking I should just set my page to go to to Google's news service because I like that. It's it's not too bad for the ads. And every time, you know, I have to look up something, since there's always the, the search bar at the top, there's no reason not to go to Google's news service. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, you do scan it and you do end up, you know, clicking on some of those ads. What I found works best at least for me, is to uh, is to set the browser so that it opens to a blank page. Now, you've still got mm. the bar at the top, so if you're doing the search, you can do that, but you're not going to be distracted. Uh, and I kind of have a rule that I, I don't do any, any recreational reading on the Internet between 9 and 4 o'clock. Now, okay. that lets me do it in the morning. It lets me do it in the evening. But there, I do have this time when I really get to maintain my focus, and I found that it does save me a lot of time. It makes me more productive without really penalizing me. I can still make topical dinner conversation because I have had several hours of day uh, to look at the news, but I'm not doing it all the time. Oh, that, that's fantastic. And I imagine maybe now it's a good habit and discipline ingrained within you, but I'd imagine during the beginning portions of establishing this habit, it was challenging. Is that fair to say? And how'd you overcome it? Yeah, it was, uh, but I'm pretty good at, if I have to do something cold turkey, I just do it. So I, it, I didn't find it that hard once I really realized that this is what I want to do. And again, I'm quite engaged by my writing. So as long as I'm looking for something that's work related, it is interesting. And I'm not, you know, constantly wanting to go and look at Yahoo celebrity news or something. Oh, yes. Well, I think that's, that's good and important. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, is it uh, Odysseus who was <laughs> strapped himself up and so that he could hear the siren song, but not be led into their yes. temptations that would annihilate him exactly and that's another reason for having broad knowledge that you can make oh you know, thank you <laughs> oh i'm i'm tickled that uh, the great author compliments me in such a way so well thank you for that uh, that feels good i'm smiling so well well shock that was fun well anything else that you want to mention about that book i i, I might want to shift gears and get a, a quick nugget about your uh, rock break scissors book if we can yeah sure that's uh, that's fine Okay, sure. So tell us, this book is all about kind of outguessing and outwitting and anticipating. And I'm sure you could, you could say a lot about that, but tell us, what are some of the, the top tips or, or best practices when it comes to doing some smart anticipation of others' moves? 
Yeah, well, the whole premise of the book is that humans basically are incapable of being unpredictable. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to do that even when you try. And how this book actually started, I went to MIT where there was the very famous mathematician Claude Shannon there. Mm -hmm. uh, he was still a professor at the time I was there, actually. And he created this legendary machine known as the outguessing machine. Huh. Well, he called it actually a mind reading machine. And what it did, it just challenged you to play this little game where you were supposed to basically make up a random sequence of coin tosses, like head, tails, tails, head, head, tails, something like that. Mm -hmm. And the machine would sort of pay attention to your inputs and predict which choice you were going to make, heads or tails. Wow. Now, it had to start out guessing randomly, but very quickly it, it was able to detect these unconscious patterns. Oh, my choices. gosh. That's so creepy. And, <laughs> yes, and it was able to predict what people would do. And when Shannon made this, he was working at Bell Labs. And at the time, Bell Labs was like Silicon Valley today. It was mm -hmm. where you know all sorts of smart people were always coming in, kind of uh, taking tours. And this outguessing machine was like the sword in the stone. <laughs> Everyone who came there who had some reputation for being smart, or smart was taken into this room and said, you've got to play this machine if you're so smart. <laughs> and none of them could beat the machine. They all had these unconscious patterns, and they were not able to be unpredictable. So the machine wins if it's like guessing at better than 50% or, or how do we determine what's winning? It guessed about 65%. Oh, okay. So it was really a pretty amazing statistical thing. But of course, nowadays, that same principle is used in all sorts of, uh, of contexts. It's used by big data, you know, the whole idea that Amazon predicts what product you're going to buy next. And it can be used in, in many other ways. So in the book, I, I do everything from uh, showing... Um, well, for instance, how to detect fraud in accounting. I spoke with a very brilliant man, Mark Negrini, uh, who has pioneered this. And he found that, say, if you have an embezzler in your company and he's making up fraudulent uh, numbers, fraudulent financial transactions, if you get enough of those numbers, like, say, several hundred numbers, you can run a computer analysis on it and see if include any of these telltale signs that are earmarks of made-up numbers. Uh, to give you an example, usually when someone is just making up numbers, they tend to like descending sequences of digits, like three, two, one, or four, you know, three, two. They don't like repeated digits like double zero or double five. And if you have enough numbers, uh, this this is really very effective in telling whether these are honest numbers or something people have made up. And in the book, I, I even go into cases like Bernie Madoff. He actually had three people whose job it was to make these fraudulent financial transactions that would supposedly fit the, the claimed returns. And if you look at them, you see many of these same uh, earmarks. Wow, that's, that is, that's fascinating. I guess I'm wondering, so in, in practice, if we're looking to, to do some prediction, it sounds like you're saying, but we got to lean on some computer science to get to the bottom of it. Or are there any kind of kind of practical day in, day out things we can do? No, there's all sorts of things you can do even without. Oh, good, good, good. Do tell. Science. I look into things like playing tennis where, you, you know, you can serve uh, backhand or forehand uh, and you try to do it unpredictably. Uh, but what you find if you actually look at tennis players, 
they tend to alternate too much. It's like backhand, forehand, backhand, forehand, when it really should be random. And I've talked with tennis players who actually are aware of this and, you know, use it to their advantage because they are able to predict, not with certainty, but with greater than, than you know, 50-50 uh, accuracy on that. The other thing they do, they want to make sure that their own serves are random. And a guy I spoke to had a very ingenious uh, idea, which was that he used uh, uh, one of those fitness uh, apps, which gives you like your pulse and everything. Oh, right. And whether the, the current pulse is, is even or odd can give you a random decision of which way you're going to serve. Oh, and he's found good. that very effective. Oh, it's so funny. As soon as you said that, I'm, I was thinking, okay, you got to have an earpiece that just like makes tones for, you know, forehand, <laughs> backhand, but that's even simpler. So, yeah. oh, very fun. Okay. Well, well, this has been a treat. So uh, anything else you want to put out there or should we shift gears into the fast faves segment? I'd say let's do the fast faves. Okay, perfect. Could you start us off by sharing a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Actually, I'll give you one that's uh, that's in the new book, Head in the Clouds. And it, I, I wouldn't say inspiring, but okay, you've probably heard this one. If you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it. Okay. Now, why I like this is that this quote has been so often attributed incorrectly to Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels that I found that 14% of Americans now believe that Goebbels said it, even though he didn't. Oh, that's so meta. <laughs> okay. Well, well, interesting. Thank you. And how about a, a favorite study or piece of research or experiment you find yourself thinking about a lot? Well, I think my favorite one from the new book uh, is the Dunning-Kruger effect. This basically shows that for all of us, the less you know about a particular field, the more you think you know about that field, or the more you think that it's easy and you would be competent at it. And they've tried this in all sorts of things, like from how you think you performed on your driving test to uh, whether you think you're a good cook, whether you think you're a good driver. They even gave people a test of NRA gun safety, and the people who were worst at it actually thought they were much better than they were. It's kind of funny because we all know this, you know, the stereotype of the overconfident airhead. Mm -hmm. And the sad truth is, in some ways, all of us are that overconfident airhead. Oh, that's that's fascinating. And I was, I'm going to ask a bonus question. Tell me this. So that's a, that's a cool name that describes a cool phenomenon. And I'm wondering, I've observed the phenomenon in the more that we hear about an issue in the news or in conversation, the more we tend to care about it or think that thing is important due to its repetition. Mm -hmm. Is there, what's, there's gotta be a cool name for that. Is there a cool name for that? Yeah. Well, that's uh, a version of priming. Okay. If you're reminded constantly of an idea, you think more about it and you, you spot that idea more. Uh, a good example is if you, uh, if you buy a new car, Suddenly you see other, you know, uh, models of that car on the highway seemingly more than you did before. If you learn a new word, suddenly you notice that word uh, in the newspaper or wherever. So it's a well-known effect and, uh, you know, it, it is something that's very important. 
Oh, I hear. So the priming means I'm thinking about it and I recognize it. I guess I'm wondering about sort of like the the value or importance we ascribe to something. Like you mentioned Khloe Kardashian. So maybe Mm -hmm. if we hear about the Kardashians a lot, I think some people tend to think that the Kardashians matter when in fact they don't. Well, all people matter, but you know. (laughs) I mean, like on the, you know, the the stage of human events and and things unfolding. Kardashian lives matter. Yeah, Kardashian. Hashtag. yeah, it's it's true, and you tend to connect everything with the Kardashians. So you know, it's it's just your your mind works in certain ways, and you really can't help it. Okay, all right, all right, fair enough. How about how about a favorite book? Well, that's a tough one because I have so many. I'm looking at my library here. I've got a huge number of books, and I'm going to have to buy a new bookshelf pretty soon. One I sometimes say is is Herman Melville's The Confidence Man. Hmm. It's not one of the most popular Melvilles, but I always found it quite intriguing. It's kind of an allegory about how everyone is sort of an unreliable narrator. And you see a lot of parallels in life. So it is funny, too. So it's quite a good book. Uh, Thank you. How about a favorite uh, tool, whether it's a hardware, software, gadget, or or piece of technology, for example, Evernote or Instapapers or something that you think is just great? Well, I've been, for the latest book, I've been doing a lot of statistics. And there is uh, an app called Wizard uh, for statistics that's very simple, very visual. It kind of keeps some of the math out of your way when you don't want it to be in your way. And it really makes statistics a lot of fun. And since I was doing a lot of statistics in this book, it was really very helpful. Oh, thank you. I might need that. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's really boosted your effectiveness? Um, well, uh, certainly in terms of effectiveness, certainly this idea that I open my, my browser window to a blank page has helped a lot. Another one, just a health thing. Now everyone is saying, of course, that sitting is the new smoking, Mm. which is not great news for writers who tend to sit all the time. (laughs) So I do make it a habit now to get up every half hour, walk around a little. And I found that that actually helps me think, too. Oh, lovely. Thank you. And how about a sort of favorite nugget that you have produced? Like if you're if you're given a speech or it's in one of your books, you find people taking notes or retweeting or getting a lot of Kindle highlights. Well, I have something on my webpage that seems to intrigue people endlessly. My family is supposedly uh, related to Tecumseh, uh, the famous Indian uh, leader. And he's famous, of course, for this so-called zero-year curse, where supposedly American presidents elected in a year beginning with double zero or ending with double zero would die in office. And it actually worked from Lincoln through Kennedy. It didn't work with Reagan, but someone did try to shoot him. So I do get, somehow that fascinates people that I'm related to him. All right. And, and how about a best way to, to find you? If folks want to learn more or, or check out your stuff, where should they go? Yeah, I would go probably to my website, uh, william-poundstone.com. All right. And do you have a parting challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Well, I would say seriously consider listening to podcasts and maybe public radio. Both of those did scored very well in terms of uh, keeping people well informed. Okay, perfect. Well, Bill, thanks so much. This has been a real treat and I wish you tons of luck with your writing and, and the book sales and the new interesting pathways you choose to explore. Well, thank you.
Well, I hope you're going to think cleverly and critically about where you're getting your information and, and making sure you've got a good broad base of knowledge that can boost your performance in any number of ways. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep39. And I hope you join us for episode 40 next time in which Casey Hawley is going to be talking office politics with us. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.